I'm Ashley Asti, and this is I'm Curious Podcast. I'm telling stories and sharing conversations that bring the unfamiliar closer and that remind us that love demands we move toward justice. My guest today is Mercedes Montagnes. One of my favorite things she said in this conversation, full of powerful expression, was, we have to get out of this notion that revenge is going to heal us in any way. Mercedes grew up wanting to be an actress. Instead, she found herself taking the LSATs on a whim and eventually becoming a lawyer. As the executive director of the Promise of Justice Initiative, Mercedes and her litigation team are challenging racist laws and practices in prisons in Louisiana, which has the highest incarceration rate in the world, not in the country, in the world. In our conversation, we explore what meaningful healing looks like, including for survivors, her continuing fight for justice for those convicted by the Jim Crow era practice of non-unanimous juries, it's wild, that that's something that's still happening or was happening up until very recently. We explore prison plantation labor and the origins of Angola, COVID in prisons right now, and of course, change. There is hope, she told me. It's hard, but change is possible. A little bit about Mercedes. She's the executive director of the Promise of Justice Initiative She jumped into her legal career feet first by litigating prison conditions throughout Louisiana. In fact, her first impact litigation case challenged the alarming heat conditions on death row at the Louisiana State Penitentiary, also known as Angola. Today, her litigation team is tackling a myriad of issues ranging from medical care to over-detention. In addition to leading the litigation team, Mercedes oversees the projects at PJI, In the last year, this has included exposing corruption and violence in law enforcement in Jefferson Davis Parish, building the Jim Crow Juries Project on behalf of people incarcerated from non-unanimous juries, establishing and building Louisiana Survivors for Reform, a group of justice-minded survivors, and coordinating litigation and policy responses to COVID-19 for those in prisons and jails throughout the state. Mercedes' work is rooted in the belief that our criminal court system must be reformed in order to keep our communities both inside and outside prison safe. She's a graduate of Harvard Law School. Mercedes is a really powerful advocate, as you'll see in this episode, and I'm so grateful for her time. So with that, let's dive in. So we will jump in. First, I just want to say that I've been looking forward to this conversation. I'm so grateful to have you. I'm fascinated by the way you're using the power of the law, how you're applying it, and just how you're showing up in the world. Um, and so to dive in, because you're doing, you know, bold and distinct work. And I, I'm wondering a little bit of how you got there. Like, were you the little girl who like knew she wanted to be a lawyer? Was that always the game plan? I grew up with a single mom who was a lawyer, and she was very much a a lawyer in the old mode, which is like everyone knocked on our door constantly saying, I need a will, I need an adoption, I need, I'm going through problems and I need a divorce. Um, I need someone to help me figure out and navigate this complex 
corporate issue I'm having. And she sort of took people in walk-ins and a lot of the time was always helping out friends and sort of what a lawyer of the community in a way that we think of an old school lawyer. Um, And so I definitely had that in the background, um, but I definitely, I didn't know that I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, And in fact, when I took the LSAT, I sort of like took it on a whim um, and, and hadn't really decided I wanted to go to law school. And then sort of like the train got moving after that. And so was there something that you wanted to be when you were a little girl? Like, did you want to, you know, some people like I grew up and wanted to be a teacher, a ballet dancer, or, you know, whatever. An actress. I went to performing oh, wow. arts high school. I wanted to be a straight theater, you know, off-Broadway actress. Oh my gosh. I love that. <laughs> Maybe you can use that in your courtroom skills. I don't know how often you're in the courtroom, but <laughs> um, so I guess, you, you know, you go to law school, you sort of take the LSAT a little bit on a whim, not knowing where this was going to go. How did you end up here? Like, did you have a professor who changed things for you? Like, what brought you to this, like, abolitionist justice reform work? Yeah, so I always really cared about the death penalty. That was always an issue that was really important to me. Abolishing the death penalty has sort of been like a central organizing thing. My mom was always talk about some of the high profile cases. In fact, um, shortly before she died, Troy Davis was executed in Georgia, which was a very hard day for many of us. And my mom woke me up in the middle of the night and just looked at me and said, I just didn't think they'd do it. And I think about that a lot. You know, there's a there's a, there's a longevity to this work and the way that we think about it. And my mom had been thinking about this man for so long. And I think we'd all sort of thought that he would find a way out. Um, but yeah, so I, I was always interested in abolishing the death penalty. Um, I, I, I worked at the People for the American Way after college, and this was right around the time that we had seen people, the voters being purged from the rolls in Florida and the impact that that had on that election. Um, and it had never occurred to me that folks' voting rights would be taken away as a result of their incarceration. I'm Canadian. We don't do that. We actually oh, set okay. voting booths inside of prisons in Canada. Oh, wow. I didn't yes. know that. Yes. Yes. Like, to me, there's no rational relationship between why are we trying to harm people in this way? Um, who are incarcerated. And so that was like an initial taste. Um, I had the pleasure of of, of attending a few panels at Barnard with some folks when I was at Barnard College with some folks who had, um, you know, been involved in some of the early domestic violence laws that were really punitive and had like sort of lived through regretting um, watching this penal solution really not solve the social problem and talk a lot about that. And that was really influential to me. It was like, what we can't use prisons to solve social problems. That doesn't make sense. Those are, those are, those are inapt um, solutions for those problems. And really when we look at domestic violence in communities, it's a social problem. Um, When you see such high rates of it in communities, we can't put everyone in prison. We have to think of another way to address this. So those were some of the earlier sparks of it that I had. I went to law school, really interested in criminal law, um, really interested in criminal justice issues. Um, I clerked for two different judges for two years. Criminal issues were just the things that I was involved in. And then I knew that's what I wanted to do. What I initially really wanted to work on were issues around uh, motherhood and criminalization Mm -hmm. around motherhood. in sort of some of the, the the cases of postpartum and things that happen around motherhood, that was really fascinating to me. And then it sort of evolved out of there. So, mm. oh, interesting. Um, 
I, I want to get into, uh, so on the Promise of Justice website, uh, it says, and I'm going to quote, it says, Mercedes jumped into her legal career feet first by litigating prison conditions throughout Louisiana. Her first impact litigation case challenged the alarming heat conditions on death row at the Louisiana State Penitentiary, otherwise known as Angola. What was it like as a young lawyer to be advocating for people on death row? I mean, I know it sounds like you grew up with a little bit of a little bit of understanding, but just to be like so young and just thrown into that. Yeah, so it was a really sort of phenomenal experience in terms of um, I have always had the pleasure of working with mentor lawyers, folks in the community. So I never felt like I was alone. Um, I didn't feel like I was this young lawyer doing this. I felt sort of wrapped in. I worked for the firm. One of my best friends did the case with me from his law firm as a pro bono attorney. So um, I will. it's always important to say, like, it, I really did have, like, a ton of support while I was doing that case. But, yeah, it was amazing. We filed the case. We filed the preliminary injunction. The judge ordered us to trial within 35 days. That was my first time standing up in federal court as an attorney, my first deposition, my first discovery motion. Everything happened in like a very truncated period of time. And we had enormous success with that trial. And so it was it was an amazing experience. It's you know, I, I'm reflecting now because so we had three plaintiffs in that case. Two of the, the gentlemen who were plaintiffs in that case passed away this past year. Mm. Um, and so there is an urgency to the work, um, but changing the system is so slow. And so the relationship between those two things is pretty dramatic, you know, mm -hmm. having had this like legal victory and won this case and then to see like so little has changed since then in terms of the experience of our clients, it's like the mismatch between those two things is pretty intense. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I reflect a lot on the ways in which the law can be used and the ways in which it can't be used. And, mm. um, you know, real change is going to take more than just lawsuits. Lawsuits are going to play a part in it. There's no question. Um, and and prison, prisoner rights lawyers are extraordinary superhumans. And I've watched them during COVID just go above and beyond to work to fight on behalf of people who are behind bars um, all over the country. Um, but uh, it is not the end all be all. Um, we really need to be attacking all these problems with multiple tools. Now I will say in the last budget presented by the Department of Corrections and Public Safety in Louisiana, it included a budget line to air condition every facility in the state of Louisiana. So there is hope, you know, it has made change, it is happening. It's just never gonna happen at the pace at which we want it to. And in the interim, we, I lose clients and friends and family members and people all the time. Um, and so it wears on you and it's hard and, and and um, you know, behind me are, are several gentlemen who I, I, I are were friends or people I litigated on behalf who are no longer with us. And so, um, it is it is always tied to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking, and I, I'm going to pronounce her name wrong probably, but I'm reading this book by Valerie Core called "See No Stranger." She's a lawyer, but she's also um, she has this new movement called Revolutionary Love, and she was she's talks about throughout the book how they're like like using the law in a new way, but also the limits to the law. So when you talk about these other approaches, and I know you're a lawyer, but are, can you give us an idea of what those might look like? 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we do a lot of different things. We advocate at the legislature. We organize people um, individually. We organize survivors. We organize folks in East Baton Rouge. We organize people against the death penalty to utilize their strength um, to influence decision makers. We participate in a lot of like policy endeavors. So the governor had an equity task force on COVID-19. We participated in that. We do a lot of different ways in which we're pushing the needle. We try to do narrative change. We try to think about media. We try to think about how we talk and think about our clients. You know, one of our funders is is forward.us and they're phenomenal. And they have this campaign right now called People First, which is like, Mm -hmm. we really need to change our paradigm to stop thinking about people behind bars by the definition of their crime or the definition of them, in fact, being convicted of a crime, but they are husbands, brothers, sons, daughters, nieces, nephews. And so I think it all has to play in. I think sometimes in our world, we privilege one tactic over another. We, mm-hmm. we're we looking for solutions, right? Mass incarceration is this massive problem that we've built over generations. It, it, it evolved out of chattel slavery. I would say it is like a hundred, hundreds of years in the making. And so the idea that we can fix it with one solution is, is ludicrous, right? We have to use every tool that we have to fight against it. And each of us brings something to that table um, to work against that and so you know people want to say like oh we, if we end cash bail we're going to fix it no if we end cash bail, we're going to fix a lot of problems and we should end cash bail but that is not going to be the only the thing that fixes it um because we still have six thousand people living in angola right now and it is a hell mm. but I, I think that's a good reminder too that everyone has a different role in this in creating change and transformation that it doesn't just have to look like one role because there's so many ways in which we need to approach it. Um, but I, I want to go to when we had, we had had a phone conversation a few weeks ago to talk about this podcast. And I said, you know, I'm curious, I could ask you a million different things, but what's really energizing you? What do you want to center a conversation around? And you mentioned a bunch of things, but the first thing that came out of your mouth, you talked about the role of survivors and how we talk about it. And so I want to dive into that. Um, because one facet of Promise of Justice, where you're the executive director, is Louisiana Survivors for Reform Coalition. And this is a group of crime survivors and homicide victims, families, and organizations creating change in the criminal justice system. And you told me that you feel like there's this perhaps false binary between survivors and those who have committed harm. Can you talk about how that perhaps is failing us or failing to lead us towards healing? Absolutely. Right. We, 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 we close our eyes. We think of what does perpetrator look like and what does survivor look like. Right. And we can think about the gender dynamics of that, the racial dynamics of that, the, the economic dynamics of that. We have in our heads visions of what a victim looks like and what a perpetrator looks like. And that has profound impact on things like sentencing, likelihood to get the death penalty, how a jury responds to. So there are these those integra- integral ways. The other thing you come to realize when you spend any time with people who are incarcerated is that almost all of them are victims of crime. Mm -hmm. Almost all of them, before they perpetrated harm, survived harm. And so when you think about trauma and how it is inflicted on people and how they respond to it and the lack of services that we have to respond to people, that is the crux of why we have harm being caused in our society. Mm -hmm. And so healing is the only thing that's going to keep us safe. We have right now in Louisiana, we're talking a lot about youth crime. Um, I I tend to think of it as a terrible red herring. I think people exaggerate it. I think people abuse that that notion in order to create fear. Um, 
But one of the things that's important to understand in New Orleans is that it's about, there are about 200 kids who are desperately in need of services, who are the children who typically find themselves involved in the juvenile justice world. If we cannot create intervention for those 200 kids, what are we doing? Yeah. What are we doing? And rather than create more punitive laws and throw people away and re-traumatize them, why aren't we intervening on behalf of these children who undoubtedly have survived some crime um, and have suffered harm? And so it is, if we don't stop thinking of those as two separate groups and we don't start thinking about healing as the mechanism of how we're gonna become more safe, we will be locked in this cycle forever. Louisiana has the highest incarceration rate in the world. We are not the safest state by a long <laughs> shot. And in, unless and until we reckon with the fact that there are people in our community who need help and try to provide that help, we, we know who those 200 kids are. They need help, they need, they need trauma therapy. It's not that complicated. Mm, and I, I'm grateful that you said that, like clearly this is not working. <laughs> like you're not the safest state or we incarcerate at the highest level in the world and we're not the safest, like crime is still happening. This, putting people in boxes or being punitive is not working. And, you know, because this is a, a survivors reform coalition, do you find that survivors are asking for things more than just revenge or more than just something that's punitive? Yeah, I mean, what we find, and, and you know, a lot of this work it grew out of some experiences that I had, um, walking along some friends who had survived crime or, or, and survived homicide in their family, is what you realize that people need support, right? They need support groups, they need therapy, they need um, help with defraying funeral expenses, they need assistance getting their life back together where they've suffered from crime, they need time off work, they need secure housing. Oftentimes when you're looking at domestic violence situations, you're looking at someone who needs to be in a safe space. Um, there are all these things that survivors need that they tell us all the time. They need less bureaucracy. They need police officers and folks in the, in the system to treat them with dignity and respect. They need their property to get returned to them from the district attorney's office, right? Like there's all these things that they need. I, there are survivors who want that, but I never hear about, I want a longer sentence. I want him to suffer more. I hear about, I want to know why he did it. I want to understand what happened. Why did she do that? They, the, the questions, they want answers. They want to understand. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time when it's, it's, a, it's a homicide victim, a homicide family, a family member of someone who's we've lost a homicide, they want to know the truth, right? Mm -hmm. Like at the core, what they want to know is what happened. And so, you know, I, I think it is, complex. I think accountability is a really complex idea. Um, but at least in Louisiana, I don't think anyone thinks that we have too, too short of sentences. Right. <laughs> and you mentioned accountability because I feel like one, perhaps survivors are, are looking for that so that it doesn't happen again. So no other family or person has to go through the sort of tragedy and trauma that they did. But also, at least in my opinion, prison has nothing or jail has nothing to do with accountability. I feel like those are two different things. Absolutely. And when you look at Louisiana's prisons, we have the highest death rate in the country. We spend the least per prisoner on medical care. We recently won a lawsuit saying that our medical care delivery is, is, it does not meet the constitutional standard 
I talk to doctors in the system all the time who tell me that they see patients from, from facilities around Louisiana who are mistreated, who are untreated, who are suffering pain, who are suffering needlessly. Um, we have rampant COVID inside of our prisons and jails right now. Um, you know, and I think you should have compassion for the individuals, but also understand what that does to the families who support those folks, right? Mm -hmm. the, the loss, the tragedy, the feelings that that creates, the inability for children to connect with their parents, the ways in which we punish an entire family, we make phone call rates expensive, we put prisons in obscure locations, we make it as hard as possible on families to maintain connections that are essential for the development of family units and for kids. And, um, you know, our, my dear friend, Fox Rich and Rob Rich, Rob Richardson, who um, they're in a movie called Time, which was just nominated for an Oscar. It's a phenomenal film about the resilience of families. And I watched, I knew Fox before Rob was released and, and she had six sons and she did everything to maintain that connection. And she fought for her husband and, but for her, there's no way that he would be home with them today. Um, but the toll, the, 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 what she had to do to make that happen, it, it cannot be overstated. And so um, I think, I, I, I mean, people have, we have to get out of this notion that revenge is gonna make, is gonna heal us in any way, because I've, I've yet to encounter someone for, for whom it is. And I think oftentimes what I've observed is that families think, oh, if he gets executed, I'll feel better. If he gets this, I'll feel right. better. And then it happens and they just, it's a, it's an immense sense of loss for that family member who thinks that they are pursuing the thing that is going to give them release. And in the end, it doesn't. Mm. Oftentimes when I watch a family who's advocating for someone to be executed, or I watch a family who's advocating for a longer sentence, it is clear to me that they are not on a healing journey. They are they are reliving that traumatic experience over and over again. And um, that's not helping anyone. Now, I don't judge families. I don't, you know, people who've experienced loss, they get to experience it and, and do it as they want. Um, but, but when I speak to survivors, this is not what I'm hearing. Yeah. And I, throughout your answer there, you brought up different things about Louisiana in particular. And you said before, like Angola is a hellhole and I want to sort of get to the undergirdings of perhaps why that is. And so one of the things I want to talk about is non-unanimous juries, because I think that will surprise some people that people might not even realize that that has been a thing. So what are they and why did they come into existence in Louisiana? Sure. So prior to January of 20, let me get this wrong, 18, I believe, but I might be wrong about that. Um, no, prior to January 2019. Oh, yeah, I have it in my notes. January 2019, yes. Um, you could be convicted by a non-unanimous jury in Louisiana, which meant that if two of the, up to two of the jurors dissented, um, you could still be convicted. You could still be convicted for up to a life sentence. You couldn't get a death sentence, but you could get a life sentence. Um, and in Louisiana, when we say life sentences, we mean life sentences. Right. You know? um, so um, the history of this is as predicted um, in the reconstruction era, um, as African-Americans, black folks were being registered to vote, they were being let on juries. And for the system of the South to exist and perpetuate, 
the solution to the abolition of chattel slavery was to create mass incarceration and a convict mm -hmm. leasing system. And so plantations were run on the labor of convict leasing. And so it was essential to the white racist establishment that they maintain a flow of folks into the penitentiaries who would labor for them for extremely discounted rates. Mm -hmm. And so um, all of a sudden when African-Americans or Blacks were allowed onto the jury, they were worried that the votes of those folks would, would, would ruin this pipeline of convict leasing yeah. labor. So they said at that point, um, up to three of 12 jurors could dissent and the conviction would hold. Over time, it changed um, in the constitution, but it, it settled on 10, 10 2. And in the modern era, there are only two states where this was possible, Louisiana and Oregon. Oregon sort of mimicked our system for its own racist purposes. Um, and so those were the only two states where this could happen. Um, my office started litigating this, you know, over a decade ago, um, trying to raise this issue of the constitutionality of a non-unanimous jury. Then we helped to found the Unanimous Jury Coalition, um, which was a coalition. This, this issue was put on the ballot by the legislature. We worked with a, a coalition of conservatives and liberals and all across the spectrum truly to abolish this practice in Louisiana. Um, we won with 64% of the vote. All but two parishes voted to abolish the practice. But what that left behind were about 1,500 people who had been previously convicted and were incarcerated. And so, and it didn't cover them. Did not cover them. It was progressive only. So we took a case up to the Supreme Court. Um, and we won, um, and so that meant anyone who had a non-final conviction could get out. And that's about 100 to 200 folks who whose convictions were overturned. That left another group of folks whose convictions were final by that time. So we represent, our office currently represents about a thousand people who are incarcerated, trying to get their conviction overturned. We took that to this, we didn't take that to the Supreme Court, but that went to the Supreme Court. We lost on the federal law, but we're still fighting for state law and we're still fighting in the state legislature to have retroactivity so that these people who are convicted under a racist law can be retried, right? So that so it's 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 actually a pretty simple ask. It's I was tried and convicted in a way that the Supreme Court has said is unconstitutional and racist. Yeah. Retry me. Hmm. If you can get an unanimous jury, okay. Yeah. Um, and we're waiting to see. Um now, the DA in Orleans Parish, Jason Williams, is committed to reversing all of his convictions. That's about 350 cases altogether. Um, we've released, I don't know the count right now, but we've worked on a bunch of those cases to get people out. Um, and we're in negotiation around the state, and we're hopeful that other district attorneys will utilize their own discretion to say yeah. that these convictions are racist and undermine faith in the system, right? I mean, that's the real crux of this, which is how can we have a system that anyone's supposed to have any faith in when there's a thousand people in prison for a racist unconstitutional yeah. law. And you're using the word racist because this was intentional. This was not like some accident has happened. I was reading in the advocate, you had a guest column and you were talking about how the practice was codified in 1898 in, a, in Louisiana in the constitutional convention. And then you quote with the explicit purpose to establish the supremacy of the white race in the state. So that was part of the, in the convention that that was the wording. Yes, yes, I should have mentioned that. Yeah, so they had a call to convention and they, the laws that were passed in that were, were explicitly intended to maintain the supremacy of the right race. We yeah. call it, or I like to call it, the largest um, monument to the Confederacy in the world, these 1,000 yeah. convictions, right? It's like, this is what the Confederacy intended. These vast majority Black, vast majority men who are still in prison, um, it, is a, it is essentially a monument to the Confederacy that mm. 
these connections. Yeah, and, and speaking of monument to the Confederacy, so Louisiana State Penitentiary, or also known as Angola, that was that was formerly a plantation, like a slave plantation, right? Yes, so it is it is a plantation prison. Um, we have them throughout the South, but Angola is maybe the most notorious of them. It is named for the country from which the slaves who worked, in the enslaved people who worked mm -hmm. it were to have come from. Um, it is an operational plantation. So when you go there, you see mostly white men on horseback with guns, um, overseeing mostly black men um, working in the fields. Um, they are working in um, agri using agricultural methods that are no longer used anywhere else. It is not a modern and functioning farm as people like to talk about it. No, we are using antiquated practices that for all intents and purposes are meant to be punitive and meant to degrade um and it is a it, you know i think it's important to say this and, I, and and sometimes i fail to do this and i want to be clear i have clients who spent decades at angola who have created lives for themselves mm -hmm. and I, I don't want to ever say that they don't have lives because they have created rich fabrics of lives and they do things and they participate in the world in the way that they participate in like truly magical ways mm. um but at the same time they're being brutalized and mistreated yeah. daily uh, and they thrive in spite of their surroundings not because of them and are, are these people working in the fields uh what are they getting paid to do that it starts at 11 cents an hour um <laughs> I, just, yeah. I need to repeat that 11 cents an hour that is insane it's insane. And it, it's insane in the context of how expensive phone calls are. And I can't even quote you where they are, but they're astronomical. You know, in order to make a sick call, I believe it's $3, right? So you have to work 30 hours just to see the doctor. I mean, it's, it's, it's truly abusive um, and unnecessary. So they have to pay to see the doctor? Is that what you're saying? To make a sick call? Yes. Yes. There's a sick call fee that they have to pay. Now, if they don't have any money on their account, just accumulates debt, 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 debt. Right. debt. And then they can't ever pull themselves out, which means they can't go to the canteen and get food to supplement things. They're never given fresh fruits and vegetables. So if they want to get that, they have to buy that separately. Like it, the canteen becomes essential. That's how you get mm -hmm. access to communication with your loved ones. You, it's, you have to have the ability to buy things. You can't really function in the prison without that. That's how you get soap, deodorant, like warm clothes in the winter, like there are essential things they need to buy for themselves out of the canteen. And I'm feeling like, as I'm hearing you, that the history of slavery is inextricable from what's happening right now. So when you're getting paid 11 cents an hour on what was formerly a slave plantation, this is a form of prison slavery. Do you feel that? Yeah, we actually have our, we, we're just working on a project. We're just starting a project um, called Ed Plantation Prisons. Um, and our, the idea behind the project is that we rethink what prison labor looks like in Louisiana. Um, we understand, and I think this is an important caveat, that there are folks who have jobs that are really meaningful inside of prisons. Yeah. So we're not saying no one should work inside of prisons. We're saying it should be voluntary. Mm -hmm. It should be appropriately paid. It should be safe. So we actually have on our website, we create, we have like four principles that we operate on for like how we want to rethink what prison um, labor would look like. And so mm -hmm. no one should work against their will. No one should work, do work that's unsafe 
or in unsafe conditions, people should be compensated appropriately and work should contribute to a person's success in the future, right? So imagine a world where we pay people living wages. So when they get out of prison, they have a startup fund. Imagine a world where they're able to contribute to their family from prison while they're doing labor. Um, imagine a world where instead of poor families essentially supporting the prison industrial complex through sending money to their loved ones and paying for JPs. Money was flowing to communities that needed it from folks who were able to do labor and gain skills while they were in the inside. It's a whole sort of reimagining of what we see our time inside of prison looking like. Because otherwise, if people, if they're not serving a life term, because as we know in Louisiana, it's basically like you're stuck if you're serving that. If you're going to return to the community and you've not been equipped with the job skills, the healing, or the finances, what's going to happen? I feel like you're just going to end up right back where you were. I mean, and that's, and that's the essential piece of this, right? Like you can work 40 hours a week doing skilled labor and end your time of incarceration with zero dollars, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it, it, there's no rational relationship between those two things. And it also just it is another example for folks who have lived lives of examples of the system failing them and the system penalizing them in ways that demean them and don't allow them to succeed. You know, a system that wants people to succeed isn't set up that way. Mm. In fact, it wasn't set up for them to succeed because we know that the idea behind the system was to keep people in the system so they could be used for their free labor. So we know from the beginning that that's how the system was set up. Yeah, and once again, we're seeing that line from convict leasing or slavery to convict leasing to where we are now. Um, I want to sort of step back and bring, I don't know, the word theory is, is the right word, but a little broader perspective. Because when you and I were talking last time, you had mentioned this, again, maybe like false tension between abolitionism and reform. So abolitionism is perhaps uprooting the entire system and reforming of wanting to make changes that impact people who are currently living inside the system. And you were saying that it doesn't have to be either or, that it's sort of a yes and. Can you talk about that more? Absolutely. So, you know, this is a flawed system. It is a, it is a horrible system. And when you work in this system, you understand and believe that Folks, this is not how we should be addressing our problems as a society, right? And so I deeply believe that. Um, I also have relationships with people who are currently incarcerated and whose suffering I have the capacity to ameliorate. And so we have to do both of those things. We can't just completely abandon everyone who's currently incarcerated and, and allow everything to disintegrate and for their conditions to deteriorate. Um, at the same time, we have to be thinking about how, how are we reimagining this? And so I think for us at PJI, like our survivor work, a lot of our narrative work, a lot of our work um, and decarceration and pushing for decarceration, those feel like real abolitionist tactics. And then a lot of our lawsuits around conditions and things like that, those feel like more reform tactics. And they can be in tension with each other and they can feel like, why am I making prison better for people? But the reason is because there are people there (laughs) and harm is being caused. And at the end of the day, sort of my only guiding principle in life is like, how do I prevent the most amount of harm? Mm. Uh, And so that's sort of, I think the only way we can sort of center our work. Um, I also think it's important, like you have to be in touch with folks who are experiencing incarceration. Mm -hmm. If you're doing this work, you have to have a relationship to them. You can't, it it, it starts to feel really colonial in tone. 
um, when you're just operating from 3,000 feet and you don't have anything grounded. And um, in my career, I've always worked in Louisiana. This is where I am. This is how I am. This is how I think. And um, I'm not saying everyone has to be on the ground doing it, but I do think that like sometimes when we're talking about tactics, it's just important to like have really had the experience of working alongside folks who are incarcerated um, to understand, you know, they are not a monolith. There's a variety of opinions and, and, and there's no one tactic. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. I feel like you're talking about not helicoptering in, like you're, you're there, um, and so you've built relationships with people who are incarcerated. How have those relationships changed you, whether it changed you as a person or changed how you advocate or just move in the world? Well, you know, so I'm a very privileged person in that um, I have worked alongside formerly incarcerated people on the outside since the beginning of my career. Um, uh, John Thompson um, was a dear friend of mine who passed away a few years ago, who started resurrection after exoneration after he was exonerated from death row. Um, was a mentor of mine, Doris Henderson, who is the founder and executive director of Voice of the Experience in New Orleans, um, is a mentor of mine, and Calvin Duncan, who was uh, inmate counsel for 25 years, um, who is currently in law school, but used to work at PJI. So I have always been surrounded by phenomenal formerly incarcerated leaders. And so it's like, it's hard for, I've never worked outside of a paradigm of being led by folks who have experience, and that's pretty exceptional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> know it is and I feel very lucky and privileged that I've had that experience so I, I I wouldn't sit and say like it's changed me because it was sort of the seeds of how I've always worked I will say that like I am challenged daily by the variety of perspectives and people and needs that people have right I think it's really easy and people will often come through and be like this is what the guys want and I'm like well that's what some of the guys want yeah <laughs> not what all the guys want and 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 I think you know it's like we can't it's with anything, you know, I think it's really easy for us to be like, this is what the people want. This is what people are not monoliths. This is a diverse group of folks and they all have different experiences and ideas. And mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing I've learned is that I need to work alongside folks. Mm-hmm. They are all working to improve their condition every day. Yeah. And so I'm not like the pie piper coming in there mm-hmm. and telling them what they need to do. Um, they all have their own ideas about how to improve their situation. And I need to listen to and understand those situations. Cause sometimes like the law will say, you know, this is a winnable issue. You know, so we can win this issue. Oh, well, if we win that issue, like, will it make people happier? Like it, not necessarily, you can do real harm. And I think um, that's the biggest thing that I've learned is that you really, you can win a lawsuit and hurt a lot of people. Um, mm. Yeah, deep, deep and generous listening. And with these relationships and you've talked about whether it's in the past or I'm imagining these past, it's almost gosh, like a year and a half, two years with COVID that you've lost people, that people have been dying in the Louisiana prison system. Can you talk about, you know, what this past year and a half has been like? Yeah, um, it's been pretty hard. I will say Um, it is, uh, the law has not, is not designed and has not been designed to respond to a pandemic inside of prisons and jails. Mm-hmm. You know, our ability to serve and help our clients in dramatic ways has been really limited. Um, I have been to Angola once. I would think I was the second lawyer to go back after the pandemic um, for my staff when I wanted to go. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I used to go to Angola twice a week. Um, so, you know, that's a big change in how 
I do my work and how I think about my work and my relationship to my clients in that way. And I think the other thing, like they're suffering, they're not having relationships with family members. They're worried about their family members. We also like the flow of information, especially in our juvenile facilities, like in the early days of the pandemic, the panic, the lack of information. So that has all been pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And while our governor has sort of notoriously been the good Southern governor in terms of his response to the pandemic, I have been personally, I don't want to use the word devastated, but close to devastated by the callousness with which I have seen people in the public sphere respond to folks who are incarcerated because it's essentially like everyone is doing badly and I have nothing left to give folks who are incarcerated. They're, the, the reality of how low on the totem pole they are to the people who are supposed to be in charge. It's a, it's a real awakening. Like we just have so much work to do for people to understand how messed up it is. These should be your primary responsibility. You are actually fully in charge of these people's safety more than any other citizen in the state. This is who you should be looking after the most because you have locked them up where they can't socially distance. They don't have access to doctors and you have not given them masks and you have not given them access to proper medical care. And these are the people who need your focus and your protection and your safety. But the reality of the politics, you know, and, and I'm not naive. I understand it's the politics, but it, yeah. the politics can just hit you, you know, because mm-hmm. in the end, if you're doing this work, you're an optimist. You have to be honest. <laughs> and it is, it's devastating. I think it's probably the right word because these, these people who are incarcerated are wards of the state. They are the responsibility of the state. And I've also heard, and maybe this is a little bit outside your purview, but in a lot of prison systems or that people incarcerated are, are getting the vaccine, not all of them, obviously, but that a lot of the staff who are working in there are, are not. We have the same experience. I mean, our client, I don't, one client who isn't vaccinated, who's actually trying to get vaccinated right now, I'm being told by the prison, it's going to take weeks, which is just oh, crazy because we yeah. have the Delta variant. Right. Um, all of my clients, I think, except for that one who's now about to do it, have gotten vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, I regularly, like when I went to Angola, it was obvious to me that many of the prison staff had not been vaccinated. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's awful. And, you know, at a certain point you have to just wait, you just have to throw your hands up because, you know, here I am doing everything. I have two small children doing everything I can to protect myself and my children. Yeah. I go to prison and, you know, who knows when I'm bringing them. You've mentioned throughout this that of course this work can be hard and you've lost some people or even just looking at like the limits of the law and like what makes a difference long-term. And I'm just thinking about the, the Martin Luther King Jr. code of like the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I'm, I'm probably paraphrasing there. Like, how do you stay motivated to stay in this fight and, and to see change happening? Well, you know, in, in the, in the like, you know, 12 years since I've graduated from law school, the world and the view on criminal justice reform has changed dramatically, right? So when I went, when I told the like folks in the progressive community in my law school that I was going to go to criminal justice reform, they're like, that's it. You won't ever be able to do anything else. You won't ever have any political ambition. And I didn't have one and I don't have political ambition, but it was sort (laughs) of like a, a scarlet letter, if you will. Whereas now it's like, 
a very much more popular thing. It's much more mainstream. So I think that's big. You know, I think it's hard to overestimate the impact that like, when I used to talk about what I did, people would laugh. And now people are engaged and they understand. So I do think there is like a different understanding of the urgency of mass incarceration as I think the civil rights issue of our day. Um, so that's so that's something. Um, it is very motivating. I, I work with really phenomenal people. You know, um, I I am very privileged and very lucky to have a staff of folks who are unbelievably dedicated. Um, you know, I was talking about this the other day. Like the person who who works on our finance department is just as passionate about criminal justice reform as I am. I work with a community of people who understand that. We have a lot of work to do. It is hard. It is grueling. It is underpaid. But we all believe in something, and we have a real vision for a future that is better. And that is pretty inspiring um, to get to do every day. Um, mm. And we win some, we lose some, we get people out. Things happen. Bad things happen. Good things happen. But. I get to work with this group of folks and we all just pick up and think about it. And I was, I was thinking the other day about, we have a young lawyer in our office and Ruth Bader Ginsburg died while I was still in the hospital with my baby. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, I was, that was, that was a pretty big blow to people who do criminal justice reform. And this young lawyer just started in our office and I, I turned to him the other day and I was like, I hope you know that like, that's not the end. Like, we're going to think of new ways to fight. We're going to come up with new ways. We, we have been knocked down before, and we are nowhere near as low as we have been in our lowest point. Mm. And she kind of turned to me and said, like, I'm really glad you said that. Mm. <laughs> and, and I think it's just like when you're doing work like this, that's so immersive, that so becomes really who you are, it really gets into your DNA. Mm. You're just, you're always thinking about a new way to work, a new way to make change, a new way to, to like create safety for folks. Mm. And that is very motivating mm. um, for me. It's hard. I mean, look, it's yeah. not for everybody for sure. <laughs> um, but I, it's hard for me to imagine doing anything else. Mm. And to be surrounded by that sense of community is so powerful. I was talking to uh, a woman who's a full-time mindfulness teacher inside Rikers Island Jail in, in New York City. And she was talking about just finding in that work, like the daily joys or the daily resilience, or like even amidst all this chaos or people feeling uncertain and in limbo, it's a jail, you know, finding that, like if you can sort of connect back to that in some way. Um, what I do have for you, because I want to wrap it up for you in a little bit, um, I have a little lightning round that's just playful at the end. But before we move into that, and I know we only sort of like we're able to scratch the surface of each of these things, but do you have anything else you feel that you want to add that either I didn't ask about or you feel like you wanted to create space to share before we move into the fun part? <laughs> I think we covered a lot of the top level stuff I would want to make sure that people knew. I, I mean, I, I will say, and, I, and I've been thinking a lot about this, like as an entry point to this work, I just really encourage people to think about how they show up in spaces. And I've been thinking a lot about like, you need to show up ready to 
add value. And I think when you, when people who ask me like, how can I get involved? How can I volunteer? What can I do? It's like, you want to step into a space with value and you want to step into a space with like, how can I lift up this work? And even just like sharing it on social media, like there are, there are small entry points of like knowledge building that we can do. Um, but I, I never want people to feel intimidated from, from joining this work. I just want them to think about like, how am I going to show up and support this work? And that's being a pen pal. Like there's just a million small ways. Donate to your local books to prisoners chapter. Get involved with your books to prisoners chapter. Like there are ways that people can get involved and show up and learn and observe and find and be like, oh, you know what? I know a lot about finance. I should try to join a board and be a treasurer. You know, like yeah. A lot of small local nonprofits need a treasurer. That's like a big thing for us, someone who understands the finance. So I would just encourage folks to think about the ways that they can show up. I can help someone apply for their 501c3 status because I'm a lawyer and I can help with those paperwork. So just um, encouraging people to think about how they're going to show up is really important. Oh, I love that. Like let, lean in where your strengths are. I also, I run a, a small nonprofit and all the time people are asking, how can they volunteer or support? And if we don't have hands-on stuff, it's, it's like, yeah, where are you strongest in your life? What can you bring in like ways that perhaps you wouldn't think? Um, and my first way in with this was pen paling. So that, yeah, changed everything for me. <laughs> um, so, all right. Uh, I guess with that, we're going to just jump in. I just have a few like short, hopefully fun questions. Although this, I guess this one's not super fun, but <laughs> the first one, the first one, because it starts with a, you know, if you've had a hard day at work, we talked about like all these struggles, what's something that either always makes you laugh or that connects you back to joy? My kids, I'm really lucky. I get to go home and snuggle with a wonderful 10 month old and four month old. Uh. And they are just a great release for me. Oh, <laughs> uh, my, my next question for you is if you could have dinner with anyone dead or alive, who is your dream dinner guest? Wow. I've actually never thought of this. Probably Simone de Beauvoir because mm. I just was obsessed with her when I was in high school <laughs> and I would just love to meet her. I feel like that makes sense because you ended up at Barnard and I did too. And I'm like, oh, that, that, that matches. Essentialism, Paris in the fifties. I mean, everything. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That sounds like a great conversation. Um, no, I don't know that you have time for reading anything outside of like work reading, but has there been like a last like good read that you've had or maybe last TV show you've binged or. Yeah. Hmm. I, I read the Margaret Atwood um, follow-up novel to Handmaid's Tale recently, which I really enjoyed because I read Handmaid's Tale in high school. Yeah. Um, and so I read that, that I really enjoyed. And I love The Great British Bake Off. I am obsessed mm -hmm. with The Great British Bake Off. <laughs> it is like, if I need to take my blood pressure down, I just yeah. love hearing the sound. It's just like a real escape for me. And there's a wonderful podcast called Oh, what's it called? Oh man, I'm gonna find this because I. Oh, you have to get back to me. I always want a good podcast to listen oh, to. Yeah. Table manners. It's called Table Manners, and it's a mom and a daughter, and they're British, and they talk about food, and there's just something so soothing about it for me. So I love that. Now, do you like to bake yourself? I do not bake. I cook. I love to cook. I don't bake, so yeah. All right. That's, that's fair. Um, oh, so I was saying that, you know, at least undergraduate, you and I had both went to Barnard college, which is an all women's college in New York city. And I'm just wondering, this is just like more of a selfish question. Do you have like a most memorable class that you took there? Yeah. Um, there's so many classes that I took there mm -hmm. that were really influential. Let me think about, um, 
I took a lot of sociology classes and I, I I'm trying to think of like, I took a sociology class of gender at Barnard mm-hmm. that I thought was like really inspiring and really made me think about sort of um, issues around trans issues and gender non-binary that I think really like expanded my brain and made me rethink things. I took Dennis Dalton's political theory one and two, which I think is like the most bartered answer through political philosophy. And I love that class. Um, trying to think what else. Oh, I took a writing seminar with a phenomenal author. Her name is Bernadine Evaristo. Um, and she really pushed me and I, I'm very grateful for that. And I think about it a lot. She was a visiting author. She's now, I think she won the Booker Award. She's been phenomenal. Oh, wow. um, and I, I often dream about finding her and telling her that she really changed my life because oh. she really pushed me. And I, I, I was always sort of like good enough under the radar. And she's like, you're coasting. Go. <laughs> so I really appreciated that about her. Oh. And that's, I think that's also the power of like those small classes where you could just uh, build that relationship with a professor. And um, so I like hearing about that. Um, I think some of my favorite, I mean, I had great like Spanish classes, but I actually thought the dance department was so good. Yeah. <laughs> like out of the box. Yeah. I had some d- great dance classes besides the academic stuff. Um, I always say about Barnard, because I went to, after, when I went to law school, I went to law school at Harvard. And so when, when I, Barnard wanted me to be the best version of myself, Harvard wanted me to be the most useful version to them. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So that's sort of how I think about those two experiences. I feel like though you have, you are stepping in always into the best version of yourself with what you're doing. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, Okay. The last question that I have for you, uh, what are you most grateful for in this moment? My kids, I talk about them too much, but they're they're just resilient and wonderful and joyful Mm -hmm. and um, I was a really serious kid and my kids are both silly and happy and fun and they wake up laughing. My son woke up this morning and he was like kind of blurry eyed and then he just started laughing for no reason. And it would just, they just bring a lot of joy into my life. And um, through this pandemic, it's hard to watch them lose a lot, but they just, they're just, they just keep going. Uh, and I really I'm grateful for that because it structures your day and it keeps you going and you can't wallow and you got to keep moving. And for me, that's the best thing. Mm, And as much as of course they are a blessing to you and the joy and just like all those things that you said, I, they are also very blessed to have a mom like you. And I think they're going to know so much more about the world and, and be involved in things that perhaps they, they wouldn't have been. And so that's really wonderful too. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm so grateful for you. And actually, actually, before I close this, where can people, and I'll have links in the show notes, but just in case, where can people find your work and support uh, you? Great. So at promiseofjustice.org, um, you can learn all about our work through there. We're linked to all of our socials, but they're at Justice's Promise on Twitter, Promise of Justice on Facebook, and the same on Instagram. And so they can follow along with our work. We, we love it when people share our social media. We try to like have content-based threads. So it's not just like reposting stuff. It's like really trying to help people learn about what's going on for our clients and in our work. So we're super grateful for all of that. And of course you can make a donation um, and, you you know, we just really promise you that we're going to honor your donation and, and serve our clients the best we can. We have a great, wonderful, dedicated group of staff who put everything they have into work. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing and just bringing some like light to this. I feel like this is such a, a, an honor for me because I get to listen and learn with every conversation. So I appreciate you taking the time and, and doing that because you don't have to. 
Well, thank you. This is wonderful. And I'm, I'm always happy to, to talk about the work that I love and passionate about. So thank you. Sometimes I, I don't go to sleep till dawn. Sometimes I don't ask if I know that something's wrong. Sometimes I mistake life for a dream. Sometimes my memories are stuck somewhere in between. But I always, yes, I always keep on looking up. Gotta keep on looking up. Sometimes I, I turn off my telephone. 